the elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this, your word. We cherish your word, Father. We bow before it. We tremble at your word, and it is our desire that our lives would be conformed to it. I pray, O God, that you would anoint these miserable lips and enable me, O God, in my frailty to be able to preach your word in such a way that your spirit would quicken the word to the hearts of each one. Father, that you would anoint our miserable ears. Father, as sinners, we are so slow to hear. And I pray, O God, that you would enable us to live this word out to your honor and to your glory. O Father, uh, grant us your spirit. Grant us your teaching ministry, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <coughs> Well, this is part six of the Foundations for uh, Dominion series, and last week we began looking at John's interaction with the single parent family in the book of Second John. And one of the things I've been very encouraged by is the fact that in recent years there has been a resurgence of interest in and respect for the roles that God has given to the family. And uh, th- this is, uh, I think, a, a great... Uh, a great uh, an, uh, encouragement to me because for a long time I think we've had great imbalance. And there's still some imbalances around, and we've looked at some of those last week. But uh, we as a church are convinced that the family is the foundation for a well-structured society, that the family is the foundation for a well-structured church. And <coughs> uh, we believe that the family retains its status in the church. It's not just a mass of individuals that, uh, you know, group together. And uh, so we started last week looking at the importance of understanding the role relationship between the government of the family and the government of the church. You see, uh, anytime you've got a revival of interest in some biblical doctrine, there's tendencies to go to extremes. Uh, That's the way it is in history. It seems like there's these pendulum extremes from one degree to the other. And we were looking at some of the extremes on the, the, the issue of the relationship of family to church. 
and uh, comparing them to the biblical text. And most of our focus last week was on the jurisdictional powers and roles and the rights of the family as well as of the church. How do they relate to each other? Which powers do they have? How do we keep from overstepping the boundaries of what God has established for the church and vice versa for the, the family? And we looked at some tangible ways in which the churches have been robbing the jurisdiction of the family. And if you didn't get that, if you weren't here last week, there are tapes available. You can listen to uh, those tapes. There's also a handout I would encourage you to get from Vision Forum Ministries called Biblical Confession for Uniting Church and Home. Now, what I want to do today is I want to get into the nitty-gritty of what it means for the family and the church to be relating to each other in a godly way. And I think this book illustrates uh, this even in the case of a less-than-ideal home. And we, we started to look a bit at that, that this was not an ideal home. She's a single parent. We're not told why she's a single parent. It could have been a situation where she's had children out of wedlock, or it could be that her husband... Uh, had died. First uh, Corinthians 7 says there were a number of cases where pagans divorced their wives when their wives became Christians, and this could be a situation like that. We're not told. But anybody who has had any relationship with a single parent knows this is not the ideal, right? This is stressful. This is hard uh, to go through. And we saw last week uh, that not only was it not ideal that way, but the children were not all acting as they should. In verse 4, he says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in the truth, which implies what? Some of the children were not walking in the truth, right? They were not living as they should be. And the fact that John is rejoicing greatly shows, you know, some relief. There's progress that is uh, being made here. Uh, maybe none of them were walking in the truth before. Maybe she was a new convert and she's struggling to uh, bring these children uh, but through the love and through the ministry of the church and of Elder John and through her own adjusted parenting styles, some of these children have come to a saving knowledge of the Lord and uh, there is progress that has been made. And so this should be encouraging to us. As I mentioned earlier, almost every family here has at least one parent who is a first-generation Christian. And uh, maybe you can relate to this woman. You're struggling, you know. Uh, my kids are not where they should be, where I'd like them to be. And here is this woman who ki whose kids are growing up quickly, and she's wondering, how do I get to the place, you know, where everybody else's family is at? I look at John the Apostle, you know, and his children, and they're way advanced of my children. What in the world am I going to do? And uh, she feels like she's in a tough place. And John is basically saying, look at the positive side of this. You have been making fantastic progress. Your family is growing in the Lord. Several of them have made profession of faith. Advancement is being made. And he does plead with her still in verses 5 through 6 because some of her children are not obeying the scriptures and they're not walking in love. And so it's not an ideal home. But look at your handout there. Roman numeral 2 is where we're at. It says, This book illustrates how even less than ideal homes are valued in God's covenant community. And I hope that you find this book very, very encouraging. Point B says they were valued by the elder. John's a busy man. He's wearing many hats. He's a father. He's an elder. He also wears the hat of apostle, which means he has to travel all over the place in establishing churches and making sure that these churches are functioning as they should be. But he still has a role back in his home church. He's one of the pillars in the church of Jerusalem. And so he's an elder. Despite his busyness, all of the things he's committed to being do doing, he still has the time, makes the time to write this letter 
to this family and to this lady. And uh, I am very thankful for his precedent. Using emails to pastor and to shepherd is not without precedent, okay? The busier a pastor becomes, the more he has to think outside the box as to how in the world he's going to keep contact with all of the people. Now, I, as a pastor, try to uh, do it face-to-face in many different contexts, in your home, in my office, in my home, and uh, yet I am very thankful for the technology of emails because emails, well, Jay Adams was one of the persons who said, you've got to use the phone, you've got to use the email because it's going to enable you to have pastoral contact with far more people than if you just do it the old-fashioned way and you visit uh, each individual home. In most churches, if you visit the homes and that's your only pastoral contact, you're only going to see them once or twice a year, and that just does not cut it. And so I'm thankful, Elder John, for your, your uh, precedent, you know, of pastoring by, by mail. So really don't think of it, of emails as being an impersonal uh, thing. It's, it's something that enables the pastors and the elders, hopefully in the future, to be able to keep in contact. And obviously we need to have the face-to-face. He talks about the need for face-to-face in verse 12. But um, use it. If you've got questions for me and you think, oh, I can't go all the way up to the office to talk to Pastor Kaiser, send me an email. You know, many times it's much quicker. And we may be, I, I interact with a lot of people in the congregation that way. A second way that he valued this home was by respecting her position. He addresses her as the lady of the home in verse 1. Now, the word for lady we saw last week is kuria. It's the feminine form for kurios, which means lord or master. And so she is the queen of her castle. And the rebukes that he is going to be bringing into her life are much easier to take because she recognizes that he respects her authority in the home. Okay, uh, he, he gives pastoral oversight, but her family position is still intact. Uh, a pastor must not turn the children against their parents or must not turn the wife against the, the husband. Uh, there needs to be a respect of the family uh, authority structure. And I don't need to amplify this since we did uh, dealt with this a lot last week, but it is an important point, and if you did not hear last week's sermon, I really encourage you to get a tape of that. Sin in the home, here's the point. Sin in the home does not mean that the home cannot be valued and respected in the covenant community. She's got a sign on her forehead that says, be patient, God is not finished with me yet. And uh, John the apostle, uh, John the elder, has put that sign on her, you know. He, he recognizes that we're all in a growth we're all in a growth curve that does take time. And by the way, the fact that there's sin there does not, it does not put her in the same camp as the apostates in verses 7 and following. They had no desire for the truth, and they had no desire to grow, right? They were outside the camp. She is struggling, but she is struggling. That's the point. She's moving ahead, and her family is moving ahead. So she's totally different from the apostates in verses 7 and following. The third way that John shows that he values this family is that he affirms his love for her and for her children. He's committed to her and to the children. He does not demean her by saying, look, you can come to church, but get a babysitter. We don't want your brats at church. No, he recognizes we need to be patient and we're going to try to help her because she does have some deficiencies. We're going to try to help her and move her in the direction of having a family that's not making her pull her hair out. And we want to be a church where families feel welcome to be present, where patience is shown as they're training their children. 
But this less than ideal family was not just valued by the by the the pastor but by all who were in the church verse 1 says the elder to the elect lady and her children whom i love in the truth and not only i but also all those who have known the truth i think this is so cool here is a church that's mature enough to bring a family in that maybe is not put together and whose kids you know are climbing the walls bring this family in and help her through those struggles now this assumes obviously that the family wants to do something and is struggling uh, there are some people that come into churches and their whole goal is to get all the money they can and all the love and attention that they can to suck the church dry and when they wear out their welcome there they'll go on to another church and suck that church dry we're not talking about that we're talking about a tough love in this church that is seeking to move her in the direction that is in her best interest now it may not be comfortable but it's loving her enough to move her in that direction it's an affirmation of love and you know love can be affirmed many different ways not just i love you but you know some people aren't comfortable with the holy kiss but at least a holy hug you know there needs to be this atmosphere where there is there is a sharing and a concern one for another and so they're going to be moving her toward uh, maturity and let me tell you something parents can tell very quickly if they are valued or if they are being tolerated or worse yet not tolerated right they can tell right off the bat and what our attitude toward people is is we'll give them hope or we'll chase them away we want to give people hope in america that yes they can change yes they can get in control of the situation that they feel out of control in and that's why i say in point d that a family integrated church is valued because these saints are driven more by truth than they are by feelings convenience or comfort their love is defined as being love in truth in verse one and in verse two it says because of the truth okay uh <clears throat> why is this uh church able to love this family and welcome this family it says because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever and i think this is such a refreshing alternative to the kind of love that's uh, talked about in some of the mega churches you know everybody's told to stand up and tell the stranger that's in the seat next to them that they've never met before i love you well that may be you know <laughs> i've always i one one church I, I says well i don't know you yet so i don't know if i can love you but uh, love is a commitment love is action it's more than just words and how do we know that there is love if there is only words now the fact that john and this church valued and integrated this dysfunctional church family into their church i think is a model for how we ought to live as a church and so let's quickly go through some of the responsibilities that the church has to the family and then we'll look at some of the responsibilities that the family has uh, to the church first ministry responsibility is already alluded to it's communication there needs to be communication among the families uh, in the church uh, after the worship service the fellowship that goes on you know at lunch together whether you're, you're inviting people to your home or you're coming to their home or you're coming to our home there needs to be opportunities through email and other ways in which there can be communication there is no reason for people to feel lonely unless they isolate themselves um, but communication is important and by the way when i say that the church is responsible for this i'm not saying the officers are responsible for this you are the church 
Every man here is a leader in the church, right? And so you have responsibilities to lay hold of these principles that we're going to be uh, looking through. And uh, we do try to make opportunities every Sunday, you know, at our house. If people are lonely and they're wanting to have some face-to-face dialogue with the pastor, every week it's available, you know, to come to our house. It's open house time all afternoon. And uh, there are other opportunities in the home and counseling and other situations like that. But you need to be fellowshipping one with another as well. And it does my heart good when I see you guys and gals uh, fellowshipping after the church, welcoming new people in, talking to them, you know, inviting them over for dinner, going out to the restaurant. Uh, To me, that is a model of what it means to have fellowship one with another. Now, second responsibility is to admit believers and their children into the kingdom because verse 1 does not just address the elect lady. It's the elect lady and her children. Now, we... We admit children into the church, right? But you children, you need to realize you are a very important part of the congregation. God values you as children. You have a ministry as children that can be very encouraging to not only other children, but to parents as well. And so you are part and parcel of what it means to be a church. Another one that we hit on last week is giving oversight, and that's why there are elders in the church. So he says, the elder to the elect lady, and I won't uh, amplify on that. The next responsibility is to love new families in truth and to affirm this love to them. Not enough, again, to just say, well, I know that I love them, just like with husbands and wives. We need to affirm that we love one another in various ways. It can be with words. It can be with hugs. But we do need to affirm. Point E, I think, is very, very important. We need to bend over backwards to make sure that we have a positive, optimistic environment and atmosphere in this congregation. I think Paul was an absolute genius at this. You look even at the most negative epistles that the Apostle Paul wrote, you know, where he's chewing out a congregation, and that epistle is just plumb full of encouraging words and compliments and praises of what they are doing right. And because of that, when he does chew them out, it's taken a lot, a lot better, right? And I think that's what the Apostle John is doing here in verses 3 through 4. In verse 3, it says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. The, the first word there, grace, I think is an important thing to have in the church if we are to have the kind of optimistic uh, positive environment that is needed and actually if you look in the margin you'll notice a marginal note there beside the U it says that the NU text and that's the one that the NIV and the New American Standard is is based on as well as the majority text uses the word us instead of you now if that's correct and i believe that it is by far the majority of manuscripts have the word us then what john is doing is he is including himself along with them we're all in the same boat we all need god's grace his mercy his uh, peace being brought into our lives but either way john doesn't just hope for it he promises grace and uh, he is saying you cannot fall so low that grace cannot reach you and the problems that you have and one of the things that's so thrilling for me as a pastor is to bring people who feel absolutely hopeless with some sin problem that they have into the victory of god's grace it is a thrilling thing to give hope to the hopeless and god's grace does that the second word in verse three 
I think that is essential, is mercy. John is guaranteeing that his mercy is flowing in their lives. Now, what does that imply? It implies they need mercy. It implies that they're sinners, right? We're all sinners growing together in God's grace. We cannot be the kind of a congregation where people walk in and they say, Woo, these guys have it all pulled together. They're perfect. Uh, we need to be honest because if they were matured to a great degree, they may not recognize the sins right off the bat. But we need to be honest that we all are in need of God's mercy. In fact, in Lamentations chapter 3, it says, If it were not for the mercies of the Lord, we would have been consumed long ago. Consumed. <laughs> you know, that's, that's where we're at. And the more we understand of our need personally for God's mercy, the more mercy we're going to show toward those whose uh, lives are messed up. And uh, uh, we ought not to think of the church as a holy huddle that excludes people. No, we welcome, we welcome the sinner uh, in the same pilgrimage that we have in growing in God's grace. Peace is the third word, very, very critical. We experience God's peace, and the more we experience of his peace, the better and the easier it is for us to become peacemakers ourselves. But I want you to notice that all of this is framed with the bookends of truth and love. He says here, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. All of the previous, he says, is in truth and love. You've got truth on this side, you've got love on this side, and you need that in order to define that because there are some people who think that grace is just ignoring the sin. That's not grace. Or they think that mercy, they're being merciful when they're enablers, you know, of a, of a gambler or of a drunkard or something like that. That's not mercy. <clears throat> it's not mercy. It's not grace. It doesn't lead to peace. Uh, truth has to define it. And the truth of the Scripture defines grace as being that which motivates us and moves us to holiness. Even mercy is something that says, yes, God is going to wipe away the repercussions that could happen but it motivates us again to pursue after, after holiness. And so we need to have truth defining all of these things. And we need to have, we need to have uh, love on the other side of uh, the equation as well. Truth and love both. Uh, in all of John's epistles, he tends to link truth and love together. Not a sentimental love that allows people to rush headlong onto destruction. Uh, that's not love. You know, that's carelessness. You don't care that these people are heading toward hell. True love is interested in the other person's welfare, their best interest, even when it's inconvenient, even when it maybe, uh, maybe hurts. And uh, I think when you begin working in people's lives like that, it gives them hope and confidence because you're convinced that their problem they think is unlickable really is lickable. You, th you show them, hey, I've licked it in my life. This person's licked it. We've all gone through these kinds of things. You can do that as well. And I summarize that in the phrase, encouraging people to keep looking up. John, in verse 3, is not advocating gritting your teeth and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Man, that would be discouraging. Uh, because you can't. You cannot just do it on your own. Or if you, if you can, you've not really succeeded against God's standard. You're, you've become a Pharisee. Um, it, it's from God that all of this flows. And so he says, uh, where do we get this help from? From God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Okay, another way in which we can have a positive and optimistic environment is by acknowledging accomplishments that members have made. They may have problems, 
but acknowledge what they're doing right. Look at verse 4. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. Okay, that's a much more positive way of, of approaching problems than to ignore the accomplishments, what's been done right, and to just keep harping. Doesn't matter how much they've grown, you just keep focusing on the things they yet to grow on. Now, that'll very much discourage people uh, from sanctification. Now, the fact that he's rejoicing that they've walked indi indicates it's not indifferent to Paul. He wants them to grow in holiness. Uh, he's holding out a standard there. He gives credit where credit is due. She's progressing. And parents need this encouragement. Uh, it's hard to be a parent. It, and uh, the issue of, well, just take the issue of um, uh, children sitting uh, in church and paying attention in church. You know, you children are an incredible testimony. I've, I don't know how many people I've had who have come to this church and have been blown away by the fact that you children are very well behaved and you pay attention and you enjoy worship and you're singing right along with everybody else singing uh, that's an incredible testimony to these people in fact what it does is it encourages them that maybe there is hope you know if all of these children are able to do it maybe my children will be able to do it as well and so I want you you children to be encouraged that you have been uh, you have been a godly testimony that one person told me these are super saints, you know, there's something wrong. <laughs> and I says, no, we're all sinners, we're all growing, and we can help you with the same, uh, the same principles that have helped them. Point, Subpoint seven balances this with patience. Patience is not ignoring issues. Now, some people misinterpret patience. They, they act as if it just means ignoring uh, the issues that need to be dealt with. But I want you to notice that the second half of verse 4 says, as we received commandment from the Father. Okay, so John is holding up a standard to which they need to be growing, and he's encouraging them on the, on the back end, okay? So there's both sides. It's not ignoring. Some people act as if patience is just not holding up a standard, ignoring it. But that's not patience. Patience implies... There is a standard to which we are persevering and moving people gradually along and we're giving all of the help and the encouragement. And so he, he gives the standard, he gives them hope that they can achieve that standard and uh, then he gives the practical help within the congregation to, to be able to do so. And I think there's such a, a neat balance. I love this book. This is just a fantastic book. Another calling that God has given to the church is to exhort one another from the word of God. Now, in verses 5 through 11, we have Elder John, who is giving all kinds of exhortations. But I, I want you to realize there are other scriptures say it's not just the officer's role to exhort. Let me read you one. Hebrews 10, verse 25, tells every member, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. Okay, we're called to encourage and to exhort. When a person feels down and feels like they have failed for the hundredth time, they're going to give up. Your exhortation, where you're coming alongside, you're saying, you know, you can do it. Other people have been through the same struggles that you've been. You can do it. That may be far more encouraging and helpful to that person than the pastor standing up and preaching. Because they might just say, well, yeah, yeah, a pastor can do it, sure. But when other fellow sinners come along and they give that exhortation, it can be a real positive thing. And so we need to be in an atmosphere where exhortation is expected. And where exhortation is received with meekness and humility. Another responsibility of the church is to exercise discipline. 
Now, we speak of this as using the keys of the kingdom. Keys open and close, right? And so keys will open the door so that people can come to communion, and keys can close that door as well. And we've got a situation where there are some people who are excommunicated. They are barred from communion. Okay, look at verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. He says they've gone out into the world, implying they were once in the church, right? And so there's an example of, of uh, excommunication. But another form of discipline is simply warning. And you see that in verse 8. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. A lot of people think of discipline as only being the last stage of discipline, excommunication. But you know what? By far the majority of discipline is what you're doing right here, sitting, sitting under the the preaching of the word. The reformers spoke of what you're doing right now is sitting under the discipline of the word. Because you hear the word, it brings a correction in your life, you exercise self-discipline and say, yes, Lord, there's another thing I want to tackle in my life. And it's only when there is 0% self-discipline that the church needs to come alongside and bring it finally to the place If there's zero self-discipline, there's no grace, right? Because grace implies God's going to enable you to self-discipline. But it's only there that you finally get to the point of excommunication. Sometimes Matthew 18 says, there are things that are so destructive to you and to your family or to others or to testimony that somebody needs to come alongside, bring a rebuke. And maybe if there's no, when you've been working over a period of time, there's no progress, you bring two or three. And then you take it to the elders and eventually there's excommunication. But that really should be rather rare. I think most of the case is where there's exhortation, encouragement mutually, and all they need to hear usually is even from the word when I'm preaching say, you know, this is something that's wrong and it's not in your best interest. And that's all that's needed. People change. And so we ought not to think of discipline as being only on the negative side of things. Point H, I've already mentioned, the church has a responsibility to warn of heresy and to preach truth. Now, people think that, you know, if we, if we do warnings, uh, like this that it's just going to develop a negative ministry but francis schaefer i think very well pointed out that if you're not willing to reject the error you are not preaching the truth it's not enough to tell the truth you've also got to reject the error and um, i think that's true that's why we put warning labels on medicines isn't it it's not enough to say this is good for such and such you also need to say you know, don't take it when you're pregnant. Uh, if you eat this with another medicine, you'll die. Uh, we need the warnings, right? Therefore, our good. And there are so many dangers attacking the family these days. I think one of the major roles of the church is to warn families about the dangers that they're going to encounter in society. And that's what John is doing in verses 7 through 11. And again, a lot of people don't want to warn about feminism and socialism and evolutionism and all of those kinds of things because they say ah let's maintain a positive a positive ministry those pastors in my estimation are going to receive god's rebuke when they get to heaven because they have failed to sound the trumpet uh, uh, ezekiel says they have blood on their hands uh, in hosea he rebukes the priest there for failing to warn he says my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge i also will reject you from being priest for me because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget 
your children. And so we can't have a Pollyanna view where we only have the happy verses, right? We need to have all of the verses if we're to be healthy. John maintained antithesis. Antithesis means, you know, the demarcation between black and white, between what is good and what is bad, what is error and what is truth, uh, what is righteousness and what is sinfulness. We have to maintain that antithesis. And then finally, there is a fellowship that is hinted at in these verses, uh, the fellowship of the elder with the congregation and the fellowship of congregation with each other. And you can see an example in verse 12. But you see it all through, really. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. Okay? It's, it's something that is joyful. And I, I want you guys to pray that we as a congregation would lay hold of these principles, that we would excel in the description of what it means to be a godly church. But let's move on to the responsibilities of the family toward the church as a whole in a family-integrated church. First responsibility is hinted at in everything that we've said is that we shouldn't be independent. If we're independent, there's no way the church can minister to us, right? We need to be in relationship uh, with each other. Secondly, the family should bring the children into covenant membership. And we do so in our congregation by way of, of baptism. But that's not the only thing. You children need to see yourselves as an important part of the ministry of this congregation, how you minister to other children, how you talk with them, how you interact with new people who come along is going to make a big difference as to whether our church succeeds or whether it fails. And I'm very, very thankful for the positive atmosphere that uh, the children have been giving for the most part. But you children are very, very important. He says, to the elect lady and her children, and that phrase, and her children, well, and your children, and our children, uh, and your children, phrases like that occur almost 300 times in the Bible. Almost 300 times in the Bible. Uh, God has promised to be a God to us and to our children. When the head of the household dies, that covenant relationship does not end. They're not just merged and assimilated, no longer have their family status in the church. Uh, single parents, even Christians whose spouses are unbelievers, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, the fact that they believe sanctifies or sets apart the whole family to the Lord. There's this wonderful covenantal relationship that uh, transpires. But you children have a very, very important part to play in the testimony of our church. Point C, reciprocate the love and the positive atmosphere that's mentioned in the, uh, the outline above. Now, I mentioned that the us in verses 2 through 3 involves John and the families. And if you read in Ephesians 4, you will discover that the elders are not supposed to be doing all the work of the ministry. The elders are given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which means every one of you is ministers to the Lord. I'm just an equipper, right? I'm a low man on the totem pole. I'm the equipper. You guys are the ministers. And so uh, uh, we, need to, we need to see ourselves really as, um, as, uh, as, as, as people who are called by God to have a, a ministry in the lives of other people. Uh, for example, if you believe God is calling you to rebuke somebody, uh, bring a reproof, prayerfully do it, but do it in an atmosphere a positive kind of an atmosphere, an optimistic atmosphere that John does. Listen to this verse from Galatians 6. Brethren, 
If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be of something, when he is nothing, he deceives, him, he deceives himself. So I think we're all responsible for maintaining that positive, optimistic atmosphere. Point D, make sure you're experiencing God's grace and presence yourself. In verse 3, he says that God's presence needs to be there, not just a doctrine about his presence. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. And then in verse 9, he says, whoever transgresses does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, does not have God. He who does abide has both the Father and the Spirit. And so it's not just a theology about, it's the presence of God in, in our homes. And uh, this grace especially, I think, is so important. Uh, we need the grace of God to shepherd our families. And so if God guarantees that grace, we can rejoice. You know, when we're having a bad hair day, say, oh, Lord, I need the grace, the mercy, the peace that you promised in my time of need. This is my time of need, and I thank you for giving it to me. Those, those graces we can bank on because he has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Point E, take parenting seriously. Uh, Paul pleads with this woman to do so in verses 4 through 6. And, you know, when we have new people who are coming into the congregation or just pulling their hair out with their children, don't know what to do, well, we need to come alongside of them and say, okay, we, we'll help you work through the process. Um, pastor offers a parenting class, you know, that can, that can help, and we show them the things that we can do and practicing during the week, but there is no substitute for a parent parenting. Church cannot parent. The church can help, we can assist, but it's parents that need to do so. And so John encourages parenting in verse 4. He pleads for better parenting in verse 5. He instructs in the word from that. I've had uh, parents call on the phone because they're interested in the church and, and they want to know if uh, we've got a well-staffed nursery. And uh, I say, no, we don't, but we do have some real nice seats and cubby holes out in the hallways in the foyer where you can still hear what's going on and you can watch your kids and uh, they say oh man I could I could never do that I can't control my children and I respond you know it really has amazed me that people admit <laughs> I can't control my children and um, we know it's you know maybe true but to admit it uh, shows humility maybe it shows humility there's something positive there right <laughs> But anyway, I, I've just tried to be encouraging with them and say, well, you know, this is a fantastic opportunity. Maybe providentially the Lord wants you to grow in this area and to begin taking it seriously. We've got parenting classes. We'll help you. I'll give you some tips where within two or three weeks you should be able to see some differences as you practice at home. And we walk through it. There are some people who take hope in that, and they say, wow, you mean all of those families are sitting through that service? You say, yes. They didn't start that way. You know, we'll be patient with you as you're working through that. So it gives some people hope. Other people say, oh, boy, I'm not interested in that. Because you can tell right off the bat they're not interested in changing their parenting style. And so it's a balance here. You know, there's patience, and yet you're trying to push people toward a standard that the Lord has given. And so the, the point here is the role of the church is to assist. It is not to parent. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody else can't sit with your children and help you in some different ways. But that's to assist you in your parenting to help you develop your skills. It's not 
to be a substitute. Point F, submit to exhortation, rebuke, and correction. I know that's hard on pride. That is really hard on pride. But let me tell you something. You have an incredible privilege to have a church that takes that seriously. It is a privilege. And if you can humble your pride and to receive it and say, Lord, thank you for this, even though I'm having to swallow hard, I want to grow in you. Uh, I think it could be something that uh, brings rejoicing to your heart. In fact, that ought to be your goal. Doesn't matter how off the wall somebody's criticism of you might be. The first thing you ought to do is prayerfully say, I want to look for the kernel of truth that's in there because I want to grow. I want to grow. Okay, a fifth characteristic of our home should be love, not just for each other within the family, that's very important, but love for those in other families. Love should characterize our homes, otherwise we will have a tendency to become ingrown homes, child-centered homes, uh, where, where we, be, uh, we model selfishness. Look at verse 5. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. So it's not just the children that she, he's addressing, she herself needs to be addressed. You need to love. So what's going on here? Well, maybe she's had a falling out with somebody in the church, you know, with somebody who got after her about Trevor and Johnny climbing the walls. We don't know what it is, but he says, no matter how you've maybe been offended, you need to step out beyond your comfort zone. You need to begin to love others. And again, there are some people who come to the church only to receive, receive, receive. Okay, they're needy. And, and yes, the church de- desires to give into their lives. But if all you're doing is to suck that church dry and then to go on to another church, you're not living as God calls you to live. God calls you to be giving of love, going outside of yourself and, um, and not being just a consumer. Now think of this. If this single parent family was admonished to go outside of herself and to express this concrete love, to minister into the lives of others, None of us is off the hook. If she, as a dysfunctional parent, has that responsibility to grow in that, none of us is off the hook. We need to be involved in each other's lives. And you know what? It's for your own children's good that you are doing this because otherwise you are modeling to your children that it's okay for us to just be selfishly absorbed in ourselves and don't be surprised if your children end up being selfish in the future themselves. Okay, so we're modeling to them ministry. Dad, why are we having these people over for dinner? Well, it's because God has called us to love one another. And uh, we want to get to know these people. These are lonely people. We want to minister in their lives. Dad, why are we going to, um, you know, wherever it is, picketing or uh, whatever thing that you're involved in, and you say, well, we're doing this because we desire God's kingdom to be advanced in this society. And I know it's hard. You're sleepy this morning as we're getting up early to go sidewalk counseling. But you're modeling to those children love. Love is always self-giving. It's not self-receiving. Okay, let's go on. Obviously, the kind of love he's talking about is characterized by holiness. Verse 6, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that you, you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So obedience is defined by the moral precepts from from the beginning, Genesis through Revelation. So we're to pursue holiness. A ninth characteristic that's essential for homes is that they must be orthodox in their doctrine. <clears throat> and in verses 7 through 10, I have four subpoints which show what I mean by orthodoxy. Uh, first of all, there will be a doctrinal confession 
of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is right doctrine, right? We need to have right doctrine. Verse 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. He takes one point of doctrine. It's the doctrine of the nature of Christ. And he says, um, Elect lady, uh, I want you to know this doctrine. I don't want you to be taken in by this doctrine. It's not just elders who have the responsibility to know doctrine. Every family has that responsibility. <coughs> And that's why we have creeds and why we have confessions and that's why we strongly recommend that every family memorize the shorter catechism doctrinal confession helps to maintain orthodoxy second sub point sincere confession verse 8 look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for but that we may receive a full reward John has been teaching in this family but he points out that if it's to be a sincere confession that is not lost, it's going to take more than just the church's teaching. He says, look to yourselves. Look to yourselves. It indicates the nurturing of our children in the Lord. It's not just the work of the, family, uh, of the family. John the elder is involved, and it's not just the work of the church. The family is involved. And if we don't have both of those, uh, I think we miss out. If you think that just one hour a, a week of teaching of the church can replace parental education in the Word, then you're fooling yourself. Deuteronomy 6 says we need to saturate them in the Word of God. Third sub-point, it needs to be an experienced confession. Verse 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So it's not just the doctrine about Christ, it's having Christ in that home. Having God in in that home but notice that while it's an experienced religion it's an experienced confession it is always grounded in doctrine you cannot claim to have god in your home if you have a false doctrine okay you cannot claim to do that because he says whoever transgresses does not abide in the doctrine of christ does not have god doesn't matter how much you say oh i experienced god's presence in our home liar bible says have the experience of what that doctrine points to the two go hand in hand fourth sub point it must be a loyal confession many times we profess to believe one thing and then in our actions we act as if we believe the exact opposite and we I, I think we dealt with this in one of the foundations things that our core beliefs are really the things that we live out otherwise it's just an opinion it's not really a core belief that drives your life your true beliefs are what your works demonstrate and he's getting on her case here because she's not demonstrating a loyal confession he says if anyone comes to you does not bring this doctrine do not receive him into your house nor greet him for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds john is saying you confess to believe in christ and you're admitting as hospitality the enemy of christ into your home there's an inconsistency here and he says we need to have a loyal confession to the lord actually uh, one of my parishioners here uh, uh, called me up this past week, says exactly this happened uh, to her. Somebody came to the door, a JW, I think it was a JW, and, um, and says, no, the Bible does not allow me to be in fellowship, to, uh, to talk. And that's exactly living out what we're talking about here. He says, don't so much as say, God bless you, giving the greeting, or God's peace be upon you. Why? Because you're blessing what God wants to curse. You're fighting against God. And so it's got to be, our life has got to be consistent with our doctrine is basically what he's saying and then finally 
You were one waiting and waiting for this finally, this last point, right? Finally, our homes should be hospitable. And this may seem like a contradiction of the previous point. Uh, verse 10 makes clear that this woman was already hospitable. She didn't need to re be reminded about that. She needed to be instructed as to who she should be hospitable to and who she should not be hospitable to. But here's the point. Even widows with their limited resources should demonstrate and model to their children the grace of hospitality, hospitality to the teachers, to John, to her elect sister, okay? Hospitality should flow from Christian homes. And so in the last two sermons, we've seen that a family-integrated church is not just put-together families. It welcomes even families like this lady's family. And it says, we want strong families so that we can have a strong church. But we don't want to take away from what the family has to build a big, you know, just like we hate big government, we hate big church government. Um, and, and so I hope you've come to appreciate that... Um, uh, the the family and the church really need to be wedded together they both uh, have an important uh, role to play and i want you to pray for me that i would improve in my responsibilities i'll pray for you that you will improve in your responsibilities to the church and you guys can pray for each other and be committed uh, together i want us to be a testimony in this in this city of an ideal family integrated church and may the lord receive the glory as a result Father God, we thank you, thank you, thank you so much for this word, which is an instruction in our lives as to how we ought to operate as families, how we ought to operate as a church. And Father, we can recognize failings, we can recognize areas where we are weak, but Father, we want to excel. And we pray for the grace and the mercy and the peace of your Holy Spirit to work in us and to conquer our hearts and to enable us more and more to be what it uh, what it what your word describes as a model, an ideal uh, family-integrated church. Not a perfect church, but an ideal church, a church that is seeking to honor and to serve you uh, in our weakness to the best of our abilities. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's